As a child, Rudy Harris didn't learn how to smile. After the death of her mother, her father moved she and her siblings to Charlotte, where extended family could help raise them. Fighting through poverty and bigotry, the family stayed together, but there was little to smile about. But through the kindness of those in her community, Rudine learned to smile. Remarkably, she opened a restaurant as a teenager. And for 60 years, she opened doors, her heart, and often her kitchen to show love to everyone who walked through the doors of Rudine's morning, noon, and late, late night. I'm Tim Miner, and I'm excited to introduce you to the first episode of The World Should Know, a special podcast series developed by Charlotte is Creative in partnership with Tom Hanchett and Winston Robinson and sponsored by the North Carolina Humanities Council. This series was created to help keep stories of Charlotte's past alive, stories of neighborhoods and neighbors that have been foundational to our past but are in danger of being lost to time in our future. Enjoy the conversation, remember the story, and share it with someone else. I'm Tom Hanchett. This is Winston Robinson, and we are here with Rudine Harris, going to talk about what I call Rudine's Diner. I think it was actually Rudine's Restaurant on Beatty's Ford Road. Talk about it as a, a center of community from 1957 all the way up until, I think, 2017 long run 16 16 all righty Winston Robinson say, say a few words of introduction as well uh first of all you know we are truly honored to have such a Charlotte legend agree to speak with us today about tradition and legacy that was curated by her unintentionally with an establishment by the name Rudine's whether it's the culinary place or the cultural space you know those wings are legendary all across, not only the West Side, but throughout the city and state. So, you know, again, to be open from 1957 to 2016, is nothing to shy away from. To say the least, to have a Black woman open a business and have it just a staple in the community for so long, it takes something very special in her. So I'm, I'm just delighted to be able to have a conversation none other than the Miss Rudine Harris. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Miss Harris, uh, tell, tell folks who don't know what Rudine's was. Rudine was a place to, to feed the greedy, the needed. It was a place where folks could connect. Or if you came to town and they said, you could meet me on Bates Ford Road at Rudine's. Most blacks knew where that was or is. Everybody was family. They'd come in the morning. Some would come in the morning and stay at three o'clock. It was just a fun place to be, especially for us older people. Now, because I didn't get along too well with young people, because they know they were too. They come here was always trying to tell Benya something. Do you know who Benya is? Who, who's Benya? Me. I've been here a long time. <laughs> you come here, you just got it. <laughs> where where was your family from? How'd they get to Charlotte? How'd you end up oh, in a restaurant? Okay, okay. 
Well, now you're going deep now. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm from South Carolina in the Orangeburg County. Uh, you blink your eye and you all the way through the town. They had one little police department. Now it's nothing, nothing but a street going through it. We were children, unfortunately. Our mother died when, when I was eight years old and it was six of us. And my dad raised us. He kept us all together and raised us until he got sick. And his, one of his sisters, all his sisters live here. So they decided it would be better if he moved to Charlotte with us so they could help with us. But because my daddy was disabled, he never did get well again. When we moved here and moved in with one of my aunts, she had four children and six of us, my dad and her, my aunt, all of us lived in a three-room house in Chile. And I don't know today how in the world that we lived there because it was just packed. But we'd be on the floor, the bed, the pallet, wherever, but she kept us in her house. Finally, they found us a house in Bitterville, and we wound up moving over there. We had to walk to school every morning, three miles one way, round trip would be six miles. Back then, we couldn't uh, ride the bus. The white folks would ride the bus and pass by and throw eggs at us and rocks at us. And we would be so cold, our hands would be so cold when we get to school. All you could see, you could put them up to a heater and it would hurt so bad, we would just cry. And it would take us maybe an hour, it seemed like it took all day to thaw us out. Then when school was out, we had to head back down that highway. And uh, then in October, September, October, we had to come out of school and help harvest the crop, the farm. Had to get break the corn, pick all the cotton, pick beans, potatoes, feed the pigs and the cows, just in the country. But he didn't have to buy much. My daddy raised everything. But once he got sick, he wasn't able to do that anymore. So coming here made it better for us. And when I tell my children how, when I, we got here and got a little job, I made $12 a week going to the store, washing dishes at little restaurants. And one day, the lady, one lady, Marie Ingram, she had a place on Second Street and I was washing dishes. And uh, she pulled me close to her and hugged me. And she said, why you don't smile? I said, I don't know how. Well, at that moment, I didn't know how. Because our mother was gone. My daddy wasn't teaching that. He fed us clover and made sure we were all right. But to show us that love and that hugging and kissing like people do now, mamas and daddies do with the children. We didn't get that. It was years and years before we learned to do it. Life was just really hard for us. But I washed dishes until my little raise got up to $15 a week. 
I thought that was big money, but my daddy wouldn't let me keep the money. He would take the money that had to help carry the family on, give me 50 cents, because we were girls and daddy didn't allow us to accept money from nobody. He made sure that we didn't bring anything in his house that he didn't buy. So I didn't need, he said, I didn't need no money. We didn't need no money, because it was three girls and three boys. So we all, we made it through that. I had one brother to go astray and all the rest, they did, they did well. Were the rules in your house different for your brothers? Like, could, did they work and were they able to keep more of the money that they earned? Mm, maybe a little more, maybe a dollar. And I had one brother. <laughs> He would get a little job, and uh, Dad always would go to the job to see how much they're going to pay you and to see if it was fit for you to work, safe for us to work there. And uh, one job, they told that Dad asked how much was they going to pay him. And uh, the lady told him $10. So Dad said, well, that was all right. You know, it gives you something to do, because you can't stay in the house without doing making some money. So he worked that week and got the ten dollars, and he told the man that he was working for said, uh, "Is this what is this?" And he said, "That's your pay." He said, "That's what your daddy said would be all right." He said, "My dad didn't do this work; I did it." <laughs> the rest of us know, rest of us know not to say nothing. <laughs> we. <laughs> Just take the little twelve or fifteen dollars and go on and bring. He, he always sit beside the front door. So when you come in his house, he made sure you didn't have nothing extra in your hand. And if you work in your payday, he always know when the payday was. If you walk by him and had to go to the bathroom, he'd call and say, "Hey, you forgot something," and we would say. What he said, you didn't put the money in my hand. Where's the money? And that would just break our hearts, but we had to go get it. And we get 50 cents back. But he needed the money to help all of us survive. Because he could, he was getting a little check for maybe eight or ninety dollars a month for six children. I had three brothers. I had one brother could eat a loaf of bread. And it's good we were living by the Marita Baker because he could get a dime and go. Go go and get a loaf of bread and eat. And we were so glad to get some light bread because we were used to eating homemade bread in the country, corn cornbread and biscuits and all that. I don't care for cornbread today, but we ate it for breakfast. We ate it for any time of the day. If you're hungry, you'd be glad to get that. <laughs> How did it feel? What was the condition? when you got $300 to sell your first uh, business? Uh, oh, Lord, I was jumping up and down, shouting and going on. I still had to take the money to my dad. Only time I could keep my money once I move out. And then I still had to take some money home to help take care of the rest of it. My oldest brother and I, and another sister. We were had to go and give the money to my daddy because he, he had he had a car, or never went hungry. 
We just didn't have fancy food. But he would fix whatever you could get a lot out of to feed six children. It didn't, when daddy was a cook, he could cook and feed us. And then when, as I got older, he had me cooking and washing ironing. I could make quilts to the day if I wanted to. But we made so many quilts when I was a child. If you didn't have a job, you had something to do and that was to go so on now. Quilt, because he kept a quilt rack up. So you could always have something to do. And you would never say you were bored, because he if you say you're bored, oh Lord. <laughs> he had plenty of work for you to do. So I was we all would be trying to get a little job to get away from that. So but when is the first time you bought something nice for yourself? I had my first coat, brand new coat when I was 15. Before that, we had hand-me-downs. But my daddy couldn't afford to clothe us, you know, for all six of us. But he did the best he could. I give him the credit for everything that we know. And he didn't have education. I had to work a lot, so I didn't go to, go to school properly. Or when I went, I was tired and sleepy, and I would, back then they sit you in the back of the class and let you sleep. And so I did a lot of that because I would be so tired. When I go home, had to do my schoolwork, and then go to bed, get up early the next morning, get ready for school, the same thing every day. And you go to school, and you get off, come home, change clothes, and go to work again. We were doing grown-up work as a child a long time ago. It was hard back in those days for a black person. When I came, when I started out, my rent was $15 a week, right at the West Charlotte Drive-In. That's the name I put up there in 1957 when I let Bill Covington and Jack Mobley bought me out with $300. And I was out of business for about a year. And my jukebox man found another bill and he said, uh, my dad didn't want me to be in that kind of business. But I tried it because I used to wash dishes for a lady that had a place on Second Street. And uh, he said I was too timid for it. Well, I didn't stay timid long because being out there in that world, you have to you, you have to get hard. But MacDowell was a that was my second place. MacDowell was a downtown for us black folks. When you went to MacDowell, everybody was you could find in and everybody on MacDowell. It was like uptown to put on your clothes and walk down MacDowell Street, or you was, you look like money. Everybody was somebody, I don't care if they didn't have a job, just put a suit on and walk down MacDowell. At that time, I think El Chico was the, was the only black place when all the gospel singers and the Jack, Michael Jackson and all the big stars would come. That's where they would eat at El Chico. I was too downgraded for them. 
So they didn't, they didn't recognize me. So I had to take what was left over, whatever person, what they looked like, how they was dressed, they came to me. Because I always thought everybody was somebody. It wasn't just a few, one or two that was somebody. Everybody to me was somebody. Even though I was scared over there, I hadn't lived in that kind of environment until I went over there to work. And I was just, I was 16 and a half. That was in the 50s. I sold um, hot dogs, hamburgers, stew beef and rice. I had hot dogs for 15 cents, hamburgers was 35 cents. After being over there so many years, every renewal came through and we had to make changes then. And then we had a theater on 2nd Street. I think it was a Savoy. Down near McDowell. Yes. I think the name of St. Paul Baptist Church was over there. Uh, right down the street from it. All of this, all of these things was right in the same block I was. And I was right where the Cameron Brown building is now on McDowell. That's, that's where I was located at. There was an ABC store. We had everything in Brooklyn. Anything you want, they had it in Brooklyn on McDowell. McDowell was the main street for, for Black folks. Was the field different in Brooklyn? Yes. Hmm. It was different. When I went to, when I left McDowell, I went to Oakland Avenue. It used to be an Oakland Tavern. Then when I got it, it changed to Rudin's. I've always had Rudin's. And I hated that now because it cost me some more tax I wouldn't have had to pay if my name wasn't in it. By my name being on the sign, I had much more tax to pay. And I wish I had known that. I got it out of my name a long time ago. I was in it about three years. I was tired of it. I wanted to get out of it. So Bill Coverton used to be one of the policemen. He came by one day and offered me the money to, to take over the business. So at that time, $300 was big money. So I sold the business to him. I was rich. $300, all I could do was hold it until <laughs> I get to my daddy. Bill Covington was a big deal in Charlotte. Yeah. Um, I think he had been one of the very first uh, African-American policemen. He, was. Um, he also was a, a photographer, people tell me, took all these yeah. pictures and um, lived right across the street from the Moreland family. And the Moreland family um, included uh, the Alma Moreland's uh, husband, uh, Jack Motley, Roe Motley, who was the first African-American on county commission. And so a lot of history makers associated with that well, building. Jack Motley used to be the cigarette machine man. He put, went around and put machines in different businesses. And Bill Coverton, he was every year at uh, convocation time. I used to hire him to, you know, to watch over the business and keep order in the restaurant because people walked and was up all night long whenever the um, convocation. 
-hmm. And you had to have police all night long. And I, I would be open the whole week that convocation was going on. He was one of the first policemen I knew. Uh, so he and Jack Marley, when I wanted out, then they took over. I let them have it for the three hundred dollars, and then I—that's when I went to McDowell. Was so, the customer base different when you were Westside driving than it was with Rudine's, or what was the difference between those two establishments? Uh, when when I first opened it, it was people more my age at that time. 16, yeah. 17, 18. Most of my customers at that time came from Huntersville when they had to walk all the way down there. They didn't have rides or they'd catch a ride with somebody that was working, going to come into Charlotte to work. And they would stay all day down there, in and out, of the, in and out of my place. Uh, and then in the evening, they know what time they if they were coming back up the highway, they catch a ride, they know to stand on the corner and they get picked up to go home. But people the people wow. used to walk from Huntersville down down to the West Charlotte Drive every day. Wow. And I had a good business. I can't imagine somebody being that young around my age being a business owner. So how did your kid your, your peers at 17, 16, 18, how did they look at you? as being the owner of this establishment. I was just like them. You know, they didn't, I couldn't see any difference. There's a very few I'm living now. Like Ralph Davis, he came up during those times and they would walk all the way from Huntersville every day if they weren't working. And, um, but they would come to town, I call it coming to town. Hunterville was the country then. I didn't have any problems with anybody. I can't ever remember not one problem when I was when Charlotte driving younger. But as time went by, things changed. Could you feel those different eras as you were in them, in a sense? Like, could you feel the conversations happening around the civil rights movement? Or could you feel? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Dorothy Camps. To was Irving Avenue School. That's the first black went to, to white school. And that was awful. But we only our business could only go so far because we only had our, our color to patronize us because we didn't get any white business. Like we when it first started and got got it going, we could go, we blacks would go to white businesses, but white won't go to black business. When I started having white customers on McDowell, they wanted to lock them up. They would tell, tell the, mostly it was white ladies coming in. The police didn't like that. They would, they would threaten them. They would threaten them uh, about being in there. And some of them stood up for themselves and said, this is where I want to be. I remember when uh, Bill Covington and them could hold you, but they couldn't take you downtown and lock you up or book you. They had to call a white policeman to come write you up, take you downtown. And I was out there in that world then. You mentioned Dorothy Counts and her integrating, which was Harding at the time. Yeah. 
Now, explain to me if this is a black neighborhood, how is that a white school? That's where it was. So where did the white people live who attended that high school? Because this is a black neighborhood in which it's located. They lived in the area. White, when I went to Trade Street, white folks are still living over there. It was just like, like Hidden Valley, say for instance. It was all white. Once the black moved in, start moving in, then the whites go away. In my research, I, I'm, I'm finding, you know, I grew up in a world in which there was a black side of town and a white side of town. Yeah. That wasn't the way it was into the 50s. Uh, West Trade Street, uh, that was still a, a white street. West Trade Street was a white street, even yeah. though at the top of the street, there's Johnson C. Smith University. Well, that's where it changed that. Dorothy Council used to live right long in there. Uh, where the bank is, Mechanics and Farmer Bank, that's where the black people started and went up babies for the road a piece. White people used to live on Babies Road Road, right where the West Shallow Drive in, right across the street, white people lived over there. Blacks didn't get on Babies Road Road until it was probably in the 90s or 80s, the late 80s. But it was white folks that lived there on LaSalle, Cummins Avenue. All I know of one side was the whites, and one side was black, all the way up to 85. And from LaSalle to 85 was where the white folks lived. I'm, I'm wondering if you um, had uh, what customers you remember coming in over time. Um, I'm going to just call some names that I know. Um, Charlie Danley. Was Charlie Danley somebody yeah. who would come by Rudine's or? Um, I, I know he also loved to hang out at the Excelsior Club. Yeah. <laughs> he still hangs out. He, he's still going. But I didn't see them that much because they would go to the Excelsior. They was at Excelsior. They didn't patronize me back then. I don't know whether Excelsior was selling food then or not. They might have sinned for food, but they didn't really patronize me. They didn't come in. I didn't get that level of, uh, of black people. They wanted, uh, they went to other businesses like El Chico. That's where the high up blacks, the educated black folk, that's where they would go. What made it different? The people with education didn't <laughs> hang with people that didn't have education. The people that people call ghetto the ghetto people hanging out a certain area of town and the educated people got another side of town. So when did that begin to shift? Because I remember professors from Johnson C. Smith being in Rudine's with me, you know, uh, uh, eating there, eating, eating yeah. there. So when did that start to change? Well, when I opened there in 94, I went back in 94. Then it was a mixture of, of retired, you know, like uh, Charlie Daniel, that, that's when they start coming around to my place, or coming in there, Mr. Wilson, uh, Tom Sewell. Well, the, the, the names that are popping up right now are, are, are folks that I knew 
there um, and, and uh, the, the person on the other side of the counter, when I came in, who was like everybody's friend and they gave him a hard time and he gave them a hard time was Tommy. Talk about Tommy. <laughs> Everybody waits for Tommy because Tommy keep it alive. He, he, he kept it alive. Uh, they love Tommy. When they see him coming, they say, oh, Lord. And he could, get, he could deal with any conversation they had. Whatever they had started, he could get in on it. But when he come in the door, he's not smiling. <laughs> Once he get in there and get in the conversation. Again, it's a different type of, a different group of people who love to go in there for breakfast. Mm -hmm. However, there's also a different group of people who want wings at 2 a.m. How did you separate though that customer base so seamlessly so everybody was able to enjoy Rudine's? What, what made you get into that nightclub aspect as well as the breakfast and lunch? The morning crowd, they didn't hang out at night. That crowd come in the morning like your dad and, and Ken Coons and them, you wouldn't see them on the weekend or hanging out on the weekend there. On the weekend, my whole my whole group of people changed. It was a different set of people in the morning and a different set later in the evenings. Uh, the older people gone in and the younger ones, they hang out. But I didn't uh, deal with the real young people because I'm not good with them at all. My patience was very short. So, so it was just natural for you to become uh, I guess extended family with the people who patronized it. Like one of my, the things I remember was going into Rudine's and seeing a, a jaw to make donations for someone's kidney surgery, a kidney oh, transplant. Oh yeah. You know, oh. think, think, things like that. Like how, how do you grow into becoming so close with the people who just come to pick up some food? Just talking to them. Um, and they let me know what's going on and and they felt my kindness and then uh, I would go patronize them or go to their family. If I didn't go to the funeral, I was going to take food. I would um, just give them a hug. I always had time for, for them. I don't care how busy I was. I would, person that go give you a hug and, and uh, let you know that I was concerned. And then I got out where you live and I was, I was going to show up with some food or I'd send the food. Uh, the winos, I loved them too because they would hug me and I, they liked me and I loved them. <laughs> they loved me and I loved them. And sometimes they didn't, they didn't like me at all. Well, I didn't like them either, but they was my family. <laughs> I had one one customer, she was a street lady. The doctor used to come there to see her every Saturday because they couldn't get her to a doctor's office and she had this skin disease. So he and his wife and two children would come on Saturday and I had a, a empty area nobody was using it on Saturdays in daytime. So the doctor would come and see her and examine her and see if I was giving her medicine. 
So that kind of thing. And the funerals and family get-togethers. Then every year, Christmas, I would have a big shebang for them. Even the children at Easter, I would have something for, for the children. I would tell all the mothers and fathers, they got you got to help me. Don't come if you're going to be drunk. Don't come, don't bring baby kids because I don't get along with them either. <laughs> so everybody know one thing about you that people know is how forgiving you are. Now, I remember you uh, mentioning to me that you don't believe people are bad, that, you know, just they some they situations happen. If you make them feel like they're somebody too, it wouldn't be as much trouble as it is today. You got to make people feel like they're somebody today. If you know a little boy's real bad and uh, everybody else is saying he's so bad and this and he's that, if you put your arms around and hug him and say, come on, let's go over here and talk. Let's sit down and talk. And uh, you tell him some good, interesting stuff and tell him what he can be and how much you love him and care. Or when you got a problem, call me up, look me up and give him a phone number to call you. You can turn him around just like that. I would love to hear the story of Joe the Butcher and how y'all went through things. Oh, <laughs> and, that was brutal. That was brutal. That was on McDowell. Oh, he came in one night and uh, he was drunk, on full. That was doing convocation too. And I said, Jody, you're going to have to go out. You can't stay in here. He just lay down. You know, he's tall. He lay down on the floor and put his arms out. And now you put me out. <laughs> Can I say the word? Absolutely. Bitch. <laughs> He said, put me out. And so I didn't, I took my foot and kicked him. And when I kicked him, it took a lot of the world to hold him on because he would have killed me if he could have got his hands on. But you know what? Over the years, which would come in there and he, he suffered with cancer, he would come in and he didn't feel good. I said, good. I said, um, you don't feel good today, do you? He said, no, man. I should um I said, well, what what do you feel like you can eat? Is it anything you want me to do? And he would tell me what a uh, he said, well, just give me one egg and a little bit of grits or something like that. And um I wasn't supposed to never speak to him no more. How did he get back there? That's what I'm saying. How did he get to that place after y'all went through such a confrontation? Didn't see each other no more for years because I think he moved out of town. He wasn't living here for years. And when he came in, I just accepted him like nothing had happened. I didn't bring it up and he didn't bring it up. We were glad to see each other. Mm. I could have stayed mad, but it wasn't going to do me no good. I just don't stay angry long. That characteristic about you is what made Rudines feel like such a safe space? Like a place yeah. that people would always remember and come back to. Right. And anybody came by and said they were hungry and wanted something to eat, I would find a way for somebody to, to fix them a plate or give them something. I had one or two. It was picky. 
they uh, I would say, well, don't you want a dinner? No, I don't know. I want wings. I said, well, I don't have enough wings to get. Because that was my best seller. So I wouldn't just give them away. And one of my just, she would never say nothing else but wings. So I would give her the wings. And she got hit on, on Bailey's whole road with a box of wings in her hand, leaving my place down there near where the family dollar store. And uh, she used to be a young lady that used to work for me on State Avenue. But she wasn't always like bad, you know, and cursing you out and saying things. And when she get drunk, that's where she would talk to me. And I didn't get angry with her calling me names. I've been called everything. Every name in the book and out the book. Lawyer Bell was on First Street. Charles Bell. He was such an important person in Charlotte. Oh, yes. Oh, no. I've run into several people who said that they uh, he helped them when Urban Renewal came uh, to get uh, better um, offers from the city for their houses. So I think Lawyer Bell was a very, uh, very much uh, beloved. Oh, when, he hit, when he hit Charlotte, he was talking. He was a talking town. He was big stuff. He's a big guy, he dressed well, and he spoke well. Uh, to have a black lawyer in town, I don't know of another one before him. Uh, he, he would have been the first, he and, and this other uh, uh, attorney, uh, Thomas White, came about the same time, um, right after World War II. So many people coming out of World War II were able to get um, some education. Um, yeah. And then um, that, that's a, a lot of the folks who lived on Beatty's Ford Road in Oaklawn Park and in McCrory Heights were, were yeah. folks that had come out of World War II. Well, all the people that was about something, they lived in that same neighborhood Lawyer Bell lived in. Um, it's across from the water department there on Beatty's yeah, McCrory Heights. Bill Covington lived over in there too. Mostly teachers doctors and all lived over in that neighborhood. And then the next neighborhood that uh, was University Park, that teachers and doctors and things lived over in University Park. In and everybody couldn't get over there. You had to be about something to get in there, those neighborhoods. Tell a story on Ken Coates. How did he, how did he find Rudines? Knowing that it was open and come in to check, to check on things to see what it was like, and uh, we just got where well, we knew each other. Well, he knew my children, because uh, I always tell my son about the good people, older people to get with or talk to if he had problems. Um, I always recommend them to talk to older people. Um, and Ken would help me with paperwork and things around the restaurant. He would always have the time or tell me when he can do something. And whenever he needed me, I always was, I was there too. So he was just like a family to us. If something happened right now, I would call Ken. He might call Mr. Robinson now. And I, I'm, that would be an honor. I, I, I will answer on the first ring. <laughs> Did you realize that your place had become just like 
a place for artists and creatives. Uh, my my father, Michael Porter, the musician. Even Westside James Brown. Like, how did your place become? Oh yes, oh that was home for them. Hmm. You can't forget about him. See, I can't thank you for the reminding. Michael Porter was a, just a wonderful person. He was kind and caring. And um, he was just a good, I call him my family too. And James Brown, I knew him from the day I went in business. Only thing different, he's in the scooter and he keeps the money in his pocket now. <laughs> He used to didn't have a penny, didn't know how to make a penny. <laughs> but all of those was family. I had a big family. You've mentioned convocation. How big was that back when you opened, and what did it, what did it mean for the surrounding community? What was convocation? Uh, like? For folks who are, are, are not sure what convocation is, the United House of Prayer for All People every uh, October or so has this, this huge uh, gathering with the trombone bands and people come and they set up almost a little city with food and um, and there's a, a usually a mass baptism. And that was just within sight of Rudine's on Beatty's Ford Road. Could you paint a picture of what convocation was? If you can remember what the C, what the C I, excuse me, the CIAA was like when they come to town, when they first started coming here, that's the way the house of prayer was. It was for all people and people were dressed. It was a big thing. They started saving money early in the year to have for convocation or pay their church money. Because um, I had customers that would have me to hold money for them for two or three months, building up their money to pay in the church. It was a big thing. It was the biggest thing in Charlotte back in the day when it was on the down. Now where it is on Baby's Road now, you barely know it's here till that Sunday. But uh, Stephen, back in the years, every black business that had was a place like mine, they would stay open all night. And I mean, we would be packed all night. They couldn't drink all night, but they would be in there to eat and dance. Um, and that's why they were kind of really upset when they Move the house of prayer and then turn around and put first, what is it, first Baptist, first Presbyterian over there. What what were other events that that uh created a gathering like that? Like I was the West Charlotte versus Second War game good for business or like what what would make Brooklyn like a hot spot to go? Like was a what was a Saturday night like in Brooklyn after West Charlotte played Second War? Oh, that wasn't good. <laughs> that wasn't good. That was a walk. It, those two schools was in competition every year. The game would be at Park Center. And then after the game, whoever won, it was a wall. You had to run. You would run and get out the way because it was going to be a fight. So I didn't go but one time, but I could hear about it the next day. Well, that wasn't good at all. Talk more about, about the, the big changes. This is a, a world that is some ways very different from 1957. Oh, no, I wouldn't open a place of business, not now, not the type of business I had. Club and club and, and uh, lounges. 
I wouldn't open one now because I'm too old and the people now shoot too much. Yeah, people used to fight with the hand. Women, if a man did her wrong, she'd get a can of lie and throw it on on people. Uh, but now women and men, they, they just different. You've endured, Rudine's has endured a tough time throughout the 80s and 90s as well when crack hit. Oh, yeah. You still feel like it's different now than it was then? Yeah. It's worse now. We thought it was bad back in those days, but now it's, it, it's a big difference. People, they're high-tempered. They, um, I don't know, they want attention. They want, I think they're short of getting attention. And they just do crazy stuff. But it's around somebody that show them love and spend time with them instead of the food. And they don't know how to get with people that's going to help keep them out of trouble. And young people need to talk to older people more than they do. Or get with an older person that'll help them to go through life and they wouldn't have to get a gun. I wouldn't won't go get a gun and start shooting. These kids now, they just, they don't go to Sunday school. They don't know nothing about Sunday school. Uh, they don't know nothing about putting on a necktie and shirt on Sunday. They don't, go, some of them in, I, that I've seen at funerals, you think they go into a park out there to play ball. And they sitting up at a funeral or standing all around the front door cussing and the young ladies with shorts and flip-flops on. Now that, that really disturbed me there. And I, that's when I knew it was, the world had changed. Because every place I had was always near a funeral. Your name has legacy. Your name is associated with delicious food. So if you were to start Rudine's again back right now to be a thousand people at the door on your first day, is <laughs> Rudine's ever coming back? No, my son and my daughter, they mentioned they want to open a place. I said, well, just get a place with just food. Don't mess with the alcohol. Mm. Just sell food. And they can walk in, pick it up, and go. You don't want to have to deal with them sitting around. Would you sell them your name? No. You wanna let it be Rudine's? No. <laughs> <laughs> My son probably use it anyway. Both of them probably would use it. I won't be around the seat. <laughs> I, I think the name stick, man. It's, it's a lot of power in that name now. So if, if, they, if, you, if you decide to let them borrow it, that business would be a lot more successful. Yeah, well, I, they they can use it, but nobody else can't use it. There's two that wants to want to do it. That I help them, but I don't want no parts of it to say own something. The, the Rudine name is not just about food; it's about all those hugs. Yeah, it's about feeding people when they needed to be fed. It's about taking somebody off to one side and giving some an encouragement. It's about taking food to people and 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 in their time of bereavement yeah and um and it is about uh, building a community we 
we talked today about the need to bring people together. And uh, you know, McDonald's has food, um, the, the, the fast food restaurant, um, but it doesn't bring people together the way that Rudine's did. Yeah, people just hungry for somebody to put their arms around them and tell them they love them. And uh, you could see the change in them right moment, moments afterward. They'll even walk different. Somebody said they cared about you. I had so many. Uh, sometime I had one guy got sick and uh, his nose was bleeding and we couldn't get him to stop. So my sister went to the hospital, got in the ambulance. He didn't want to get in, but she got in the ambulance with him and stayed all night. We didn't know his family. I didn't know his family, but she went and stayed with him. And he always would come by and let us know that my sister was the one kept him, was the reason for him living. His no, because he could have bled to death if he'd been somewhere else. So we got a lot of babies out there. A lot of people we took care of. And I always kept shirts, t-shirts at my place. If somebody was too dirty to be in there, I would I would go to them and get them and say, listen, you're a little bit too dirty. I'm gonna, I got some shirts back here. Let's try on one. Or let's put one on. Because they would tell me, well, I live way so and so and so. I can't go back and get a shirt. I said, well, I got some. Just a white t-shirt. So that they can come in and feel like everybody else. That's what it was all about with me. Because all of them was my children. I thought everybody was my child. Thank you for listening to this episode of The World Should Know, a special podcast series developed by Charlotte is Creative in partnership with Tom Hanchett and Winston Robinson and sponsored by the North Carolina Humanities Council. For a written companion piece to this podcast and a portrait series of photographs of Miss Harris shot by Charlotte photographer Will Jenkins, a.k.a. Simplistic Phobia, visit BiscuitCLT.com.